The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello again, everybody. Kanaz Filan, back with you. This will be our 12th episode of Notes from the End of Time, and today we're going to talk about a light, pleasant, and cheerful topic, hell. And out of all the many things that really bother non-Christians about Christianity, our conception of hell has probably caused us more trouble than it has good. We all know the stories, Christians cackling with glee about how all of their enemies are going to hell, Christians living in abject terror of some eternal damnation, afraid to touch themselves or to do anything that might offend God. It's a harsh doctrine. I mean, you're saying that somebody can be thrown into eternal torment. Somebody can be tormented forever for their sins. And what's more, you're saying that, we're saying that all people are at risk of eternal damnation and that without salvation from Jesus, they will find eternal damnation. And I will grant you that's a terrifying idea. But what if it's true? What are the justifications that Christianity, or the branch of Christianity with which I'm most familiar, Roman Catholicism, how do they justify this idea? Now, let's first start by unpacking the big question before us, which is, do human beings have an immortal soul? And if you don't buy that idea, if you think that human beings are just particularly complicated animals and that life ends at the moment of death, the whole idea of hell is, of course, ludicrous. I mean, it's pie in the sky and torture chambers in the cellar. The Catholic position on the question is, as stated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the human person, created in the image of God, is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language when it affirms that Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man, whole and entire, is therefore willed by God. In sacred scripture, the term soul often refers to human life or the entire human person. But soul also refers to the innermost aspect of man, that which is of greatest value in him, that by which he is most especially in God's image. Soul signifies the spiritual principle in man. The human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul, and it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the Spirit. The unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body, i.e., it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human body. Spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. The Church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God, it is not produced by the parents, and also that it is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death, and it will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. Sometimes the soul is distinguished from the spirit. St. Paul, for instance, prays that God may sanctify his people wholly, with spirit and soul and body kept sound and blameless at the Lord's coming. 
The church teaches that this distinction does not introduce a duality into the soul. Spirit signifies that from creation man is ordered to a supernatural end and that his soul can gratuitously be raised beyond all it deserves to communion with God. The spiritual tradition of the church also emphasizes the heart in the biblical sense of the depths of one's being, where the person decides for or against God. And I note here the emphasis on the heart and the inner life. So far as we know, man is the only animal that has an interior monologue. We ruminate over our actions, we weigh the various factors and then choose logically or emotionally or for any of a thousand different reasons, but we choose and we think. Again, as Descartes said, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. What part of us is it that's doing the thinking? And it's really standard nowadays to say, of course, those are just brain functions. This isn't a soul. This is just an organic process. It's electrons moving around in the neurons. I'm reminded of the famous meme with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, wherein Donald Duck says, Everything that we know and love is reducible to the absurd acts of chemicals, and there is therefore no intrinsic value in this material universe. To which Mickey replies, Hypocrite that you are, for you trust the chemicals in your brain to tell you they are chemicals. All knowledge is ultimately based on that which we cannot prove. Will you fight or will you perish like a dog? The question of emergent consciousness is a really big entangled one. You can argue that consciousness emerges as a result of physical forces. You can, you know, you can postulate that there's something else going on there. If you believe that consciousness is simply a matter of stuff moving around in your brain and that consciousness and the soul ends after you die, then of course there's really no argument I can make about hell that would be for or against it that would be at all relevant to your life. I'll acknowledge that. But if you acknowledge that there may be a mind and a body, there's a duality. And again, I think it's important to note here, and now I'm going to start getting into some really deep theological waters for a second, the idea of the body and the soul being a unity, not a duality. We have a body and a soul, and they're together for a reason. The Catholic Church has frequently been accused of hating the body, of promoting asceticism. Now, the ascetic practices were always intended. Extreme asceticism was for a very, very few people. The Church does not consider the body inherently sinful. I mentioned this last week, Pope Francis's line about the pleasures of the flesh and the table being divine. We believe that the pleasure is a gift from God, and you can enjoy pleasure in moderation. When you take it too far, it becomes corrosive to the soul and to the individual. And let's say now you're one of those people who believes or who strongly suspects that there's something more to the human experience than just our animal instincts our phys and our physical world, that there is a soul. And a lot of people believe this consciously or they've internalized the belief, and it's not at all a specifically Christian belief. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism all presume the existence of a soul. So let's assume you're with those people now. We've gotten to the existence of a soul. What happens to that soul after death? And there are a lot of different visions of that, of course. But one thing that seems to come up over and over across cultures is that the fate of the soul in the next life is determined in large part by the actions of the individual in this life. In Indo-European mythology, the common version would be that most dead go to this kind of grim gray place, 
a few great heroes go to a more heroic fate. In, for example, in Greek mythology, you would have most of the dead going to the land of Hades, where particularly brave heroes might go to Elysium, the Elysian fields, and particularly villainous people might find themselves in Tartarus, one of the abodes of eternal torment. You have something like this, of course, in Norse mythology, you have Valhalla for the heroes and Helheim for the common folk. Many Asian visions of the afterlife involve reincarnation, and of course there frequently your re how you reincarnate. Do you reincarnate in a higher caste, in a lower caste? Do you reincarnate as an animal? Do you go on to Buddhahood? That depends on the actions which, you, again, you take in this lifetime. So there's, the details vary a lot on that. The details on afterlife vary more than the standard codes of common morality between cultures, I will say that. But there's that idea, again, that what you do in this life counts in the next. Christianity did not invent the ideas of demons or hell. You could certainly get cast into the eternal hells in Egypt, in Egypt if the scrolls of the dead are any indication. Certainly Tibetan Buddhism has as creative a demonology and as creative a vision of hell as anything we ever came up with in Christianity. So, these ideas have been around for a long time, and they come across a lot of cultures. This, I'm not doing the argumentum ad populum here. The fact that lots of people believe things don't mean it's true. Lots of people believe Justin Bieber's worth listening to. All of these visions speak to what I've talked about for the past couple weeks, which C.S. Lewis mentions, that inborn sense of justice and that longing for fairness we want to believe or our myths tell us that in the afterlife bad people are punished for their sins and good people are rewarded for their virtues and of course this can quickly degenerate into damning all of your enemies to eternal torment and thinking that every wrong that was done to you will be punished in some afterlife, while, of course, assuming that what you are doing is good and moral and virtuous, and so long as you uphold those laws, you've got a golden ticket into the heavenly afterlife. But Christianity adds another really interesting wrinkle to this. Christianity starts with a God who judges you by a moral code which you cannot live up to. And this seems insane. I mean, what kind of a sadist is a god that would create a moral code we can't live up to and then judge us on it? But is it not an accurate description of the human condition? We know the difference between right and wrong. To use the Christian term, we have the knowledge of good and evil, but yet we're constantly tempted to do evil over good, and we constantly choose to do so for any number of excuses that we make for ourselves. But the fact is, we don't live up to our own standards. If you think of God as eternal perfection, we could no more live up to what that God would consider good than an amoeba could paint the Mona Lisa. So as an answer to this existential dilemma, Christianity posits that this God was so good and so loving that he sent down his only begotten son, Jesus, who was then crucified under Pontius Pilate, scourged, spat upon, nailed to a cross, and left to die of exposure and blood loss. This God-man then rose from the dead on Sunday morning, preached to the disciples, and then ascended into heaven, and his death and resurrection served as a template by which 
all men could be saved regardless of their moral failings. I should quickly note that this was not a get-out-of-punishment-free card. There were moral expectations attached to becoming a Christian. There were be things you were not supposed to do. There were things you were supposed to do. You were expected to behave benevolently toward your fellow man. You were expected to obey moral rules of chastity, of decency, modesty. Again, this gets back to that innate sense of decency and morality that I was talking about a couple minutes ago. A religion which simply said, you are forgiven, do whatever you want, and you will have an eternal reward simply by saying my name, wouldn't be a religion at all. It'd be a cheap magical exercise. It would be empty, and it would feel empty to everybody doing it. Most of us have that innate desire to do good and avoid evil, and most of us understand that the world is a complicated place, and we want some kind of guidelines on how to do that. Christianity did that, and it called good and evil good and evil. Then, as now, that hard moral line proved very appealing to some people and very threatening to others. And in the early days of Christianity, others included some very, very powerful people. And so the early days of Christianity were generally marked by a hostile relationship with their neighbors and with the governing officials. There were many Christians who were martyred, many Christians who were tortured for their faith, and it's frequently taken as a given that those early Christians suffered through all of those torments and died in the arenas because they thought they were going to heaven, I might submit that they were motivated by something else, that they died knowing in their hearts, in their bones, and in their souls that they were doing the right thing. And that's a very, having that moral instinct that we've talked about earlier satisfied, you know, having the feeling that I am doing the right thing, I am doing what God wants me to do, the sense of satisfaction and joy that one gets from that might well have been its own reward. And perhaps the most interesting thing about the Christian persecutions was not only did they not succeed in stamping out Christianity, they made it more popular. The harder the authorities fought against the Christian community, the more they fell into the role of absolute evil, and the more they made Christians feel like and look like the light shining in the darkness. And as the Roman Empire crumbled, and as the ethics of the Roman Republic became increasingly deprecated, Christianity became a more and more appealing option. Despite, oh yeah, you could be persecuted, you could lose your job, you could, ev you could even be killed, but at least you had a sense of right and wrong, which was something that your society had lost altogether. The early Christians also did something then, which was just as shocking and offensive as it is today, they declared that they had the truth and that all other religions were false. As Jesus puts it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For them, the options were very simple. Accept Christ or go to hell. And I should note they did not take any particular delight in the fact that the sinful world was going to hell while they were going to be saved. In fact, they made every effort to preach the gospel, preach the good news, even at the cost of their lives, at the cost of persecution, at the cost of ridicule. 
because they genuinely believed that individual immortal souls were on the line and that it was their duty to save these people. Well, it wasn't just this wish-fulfillment fantasy, oh, I hate him and I hope he suffers in the next life. Hell was a very real possibility for these people, and they felt obligated to save as many as they could from going to hell. They encouraged people to choose Christ and to choose his church, and this brings us to another very important and often hotly discussed topic, that of free will. The gift of salvation was open to anyone who chose it, but the individual had to make that choice. And of course, John Calvin became infamous for his doctrine of predestination, which suggests that God chose some souls to be saved and left the rest to be damned. If God is omniscient, as the Christian definition of God supposes, then he knew from the beginning who would be saved and who would be damned. And according to the Calvinists, he chose as he sees fit for his own inscrutable reasons. The Catholic position on this is a lot more nuanced. Yes, because God is omniscient, he knows who will be saved and who will be damned. But all who are saved and all who are damned are saved or damned by their own conscious choice. If we consciously accept Christ and if we consciously make the effort to live a life pleasing to Christ, then Christ grants us salvation. If we choose to reject Christ and reject that salvation, then we are damned. I already hear all the objections to this approach. A lot of you may find it unbelievable. I can certainly sympathize with that. Christianity does center around a crazy story of a guy who was born of a virgin and came back from the dead after dying on a cross, and that could be a big pill to swallow. But a lot of you are rejecting it not because you think it's untrue, but because you find it too frightening and too unpleasant. I have high blood sugar. I'm not diabetic. I was able to keep it under control by eating more keto and avoiding processed sugars. But let's say I get a diagnosis. You know, hey, Kanaz, your diabetes is really acting up and you're going to have to go on this diet. You're going to have to start taking regular insulin shots. You're going to have to make all these lifestyle changes. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, this is a lot of work, you know, and this just, it seems really unfair that I've got to give up my caramel lattes in the morning. This is really, you know, this is too harsh and too hard to deal with, so I'm just going to ignore it. Well, I made a conscious choice to avoid that recommendation because I felt it was too difficult. And, you know, one leg and two fingers later, I might come back and say, you know, I really regret making that choice. Christianity's views on man's inherent tendency to sin appear to be pretty sound to me. As G.K. Chesterton noted, they're the one thing in Christianity that can be easily proven. You can see sin in the street. You can see sin on your internet. You certainly can see sin in yourself. So if we accept that we live in a fallen and a sinful world, Shouldn't we at least give a serious look at a program which promises to redeem that fallen world and which promises to redeem those sinners? Given that we can easily see the impact of sin on our temporal world, why would it be so difficult to imagine that sin could have an equally deleterious effect on the immortal soul? Anybody who's lived with addiction, either with the disease or seeing a loved one succumb to the disease, has seen the way that crack addiction, for example, can turn you into a thief, a prostitute. It 
leaves you this hollowed out shell of a person just looking for a, your next hit. We're all familiar with the meme of the coomer, the guy with bags under his eyes and a vapid smile just looking for the next porn clip to tug it to. We've seen people who hold on to grudges until they're just eaten up with hatred and bitterness for the world and everything in it. We can see the effects of sin on a social level. We can see them on an individual level. We can see them on a personal level. Is it that difficult to imagine that if you accept the existence of an immortal soul, to believe that that damage on an eternal soul might be eternal. And I'm hearing those protests again. Oh my God, Kanaz is trying to convert us with fear of hellfire and damnation. Okay, any fear you feel, any discomfort you feel when hearing this is your own discomfort. All I'm doing here is trying to explain the doctrine of hell and the logic behind it. If you're finding that convincing and it scares you, well, good, it should, you should be scared. It's a terrifying idea. The idea that our actions can have consequences on our immortal soul is terrifying. And while we're on this subject, let's talk about the idea of hellfire. Hell is frequently associated with fire in the Bible. It's with the smoking garbage dump of Gehimnan, or as we call it, Gehenna. The idea of burning in hell, of course, is a famous trope. Now, we also have a famous trope of the angels in heaven playing their, playing golden harps as they float around on fluffy clouds. You see it in ads for toilet tissue. It's a, it, those are metaphors. They're images which are intended to describe a state of being. They are not necessarily to be taken as literal. Let's take a look at the Roman Catholic Church's version of hell as seen in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. But we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor, or against ourselves. He who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Our Lord warns us that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, of the unquenchable fire reserved for those who, to the end of their lives, refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire, and that he will pronounce the condemnation, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. The teachings of the church affirm the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell. Eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and to which he longs. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary and persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the Church implores the mercy of God who does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. So am I saying that only Christians can get into heaven and everybody else is damned? Well, what's important is not what I'm saying. Let's take a look at John 14, 6, wherein Jesus said, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Mark 16, verses 15 through 16, Christ said to his followers, Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And, of course, I hear the choir rising to a dull roar. My, so there's only one way to be saved, and it just happens to be the religion you were born in. How very convenient. Well, it's not. There are many Christians who would say just that. Those guys you see carrying placards and passing out pamphlets and preaching from the Bible on street corners are doing that because they honestly believe that the passers-by are going to be damned unless they accept Christ as their personal Savior and are thereby saved. You may not like their message. You may feel that it's they're imposing on you and trying to shove their religion down your throat, but they're doing it in your best interest. I'm not saying they're right. I, as a Catholic, I have some serious theological differences with the evangelical and reformed movements, but I am saying that they are doing it in the hopes that you will find salvation and eternal life, not because they want to make you feel bad or round you up and make all women barefoot and pregnant and hang homosexuals and infidels. You may not like being called a sinner, but according to the Christian ideology, all of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And again, as I said before, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of the human condition. You may ask, how dare he condemn me to hell for my sins? But what if he's telling the truth? What if your sins are such that they will damn your immortal soul to the point where it will be eternally separated from God? Well, I can't believe God would condemn somebody to hell. No. God doesn't condemn anybody to hell. You condemn yourself to hell when you refuse God. I recall an anecdote from an Orthodox teacher whose name escapes me at the moment that the dead in heaven and the dead in hell are in the same place. For the saved dead, for those who love God, being in the eternal light and presence of God is eternal bliss. For those who hate and fear God, those who have shut themselves off from him, being in the eternal presence of God is eternal torment. One of the great American myths, and also one of the founding myths of postmodernism, is the idea of the self-made man, the individual given total individual autonomy to become the individual he, she, they, or pronoun of choice wants to be. The French Revolution started out by dethroning God and putting humanity in his place, mankind, the human race. The postmodern world went even a step further. They replaced the human race and humanity with the individual. And I think it's pretty clear that the human race has done some pretty impressive things, but we did not create the universe we are neither omnipotent, omniscient, or omnibenevolent. We are a flawed species. In fact, we're given to some really horrific cruelties. Worshipping us is silly, and if it's silly to worship the human race, how much sillier is it to put your center pole of your ideology around the individual? If you go to social media, you'll find an innumerable conglomeration of these individuals who are busily parading their vices as virtues, working to overcome the virtues that they consider vices. They've fastened their identity around a hundred different labels. They've taken all the things that they think society considers to be bad, weak, or wrong, and they parade them about as a point of pride, and they have constructed themselves. You'll notice many of the most radically reconstructed of these people have difficulty doing things like holding jobs. Most of them have no interest in raising families and bringing up a new generation 
temptation to act in the right way. In fact, most are openly contemptuous of that nuclear family, which was considered the base of Christian society, was considered the base of every society before postmodern times, to be blunt. And you'll also note that most are desperately unhappy. So unhappy that they have to take antipsychotic medications, that they have to take antidepressants to even keep them at their low level of function within our society. This would kind of suggest to me that that approach is a theological, intellectual, spiritual, and practical dead end. And you may disagree, and you may just think I'm being judgy McJudgmental here. But now let's stop and think. Would you rather spend eternity in the presence of God as the perfected you, or would you rather spend your eternity as a non-binary, pansexual, bipolar, neurodivergent, gluten-intolerant, anarcho-socialist furry? Do you find it difficult to believe that an almighty and ever-living God might have a better, grander, an ultimately more fulfilling vision of what you could be than any self-construction you could create. Take a look in the mirror at the broken thing you are, the broken thing that you've been told you should be proud of, and ask yourself, what is there to be proud of? What's so great about this? Is this the best I could become? Because I'm telling you, no, it's not. And you're telling me, you know, well, who are you to judge me? And you are absolutely right. I am nobody to judge you. I can pray for you. I can offer you what I believe would lead you to a better life. But I can't force it down your throat. And here's the thing. Neither can God. We are born with free will. You can choose to accept God, or you can choose to reject God. If you choose to reject God, then you bear the consequences of that. If you choose to accept God, you also bear the consequences of that. It's being a Christian, contrary to what some prosperity gospel preachers will tell you, does not guarantee an easy life. It does not guarantee a comfortable life. You doesn't guarantee you're going to get wealthy, famous, or admired. In fact, more often than not, it's going to be an enormous hassle being a Christian in a non-Christian world. And so what you're saying, I'm hearing, is that you want me to take a huge leap of faith and follow a lifestyle which is going to make me less comfortable, less popular with my peers, which is going to impose all kinds of restrictions on the things I like to do, is going to leave me constantly examining my behavior and feeling guilty when I come up short, and you're telling me to do this for an immortal soul whose existence you can't prove. Yeah, and hey, I know it's a pretty big jump, but... How is a godless life working out for you? But I don't have a godless life. I'm a spiritual person. I don't just confine myself to the Bible. I study all kinds of spiritual traditions, and I practice from them the best way I know how. No, you don't study various spiritual traditions. What you've done is you've cherry-picked the stuff that you find most appealing from various traditions, and put it together in a wish-fulfillment fantasy where you can worship God as you would like God to be, not God as he actually is, because God as he actually is, is a mighty God, is a beautiful God, but he's also a terrible God and a terrifying God. Take a look at his creation. There's plenty of beauty there, but there's also plenty of danger. And in his world, there can be fatal consequences for one's actions. The law of gravity doesn't make exceptions. The law of thermodynamics doesn't make exceptions. Why would you think that the God who created those laws would want to make exceptions for the law of morality? We can work with the law of gravity by inventing parachutes which help us to survive high falls, 
We can work with the laws of thermodynamics by putting a pot, using a pot holder to make sure that the heat from that frying pan isn't transferred into the skin of our hand. And God gave us an exception with the laws of morality. He thought our situation was so dire that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross so that those who believed in him would not perish as they would perish by the law of morality, but instead would have everlasting life. The Christian solution takes the moral law into account. It takes that moral law that we have imprinted in our hearts, the one that tells us when we're doing right and urges us to avoid wrong. It takes into account our human fallibility and our inability to live up to that moral law. Does your spiritual solution, which you've come up with from studying various traditions and picking the parts that you found most appealing, answer those questions? The Christian solution takes into account human free will and makes us participants in our own redemption, but it also reminds us that with free will comes accountability. And one of the classic dodges of post-Christian spirituality has been karma, the idea which sort of kind of comes from traditional Indian practices. Now, in Hinduism, as I understand it, karma is that which binds you to the wheel of life and death. The idea is to get rid of all karma. There's no such thing as good karma any more than there is good cancer. When that view in the 19th century, thanks to theosophy and a couple of other philosophies of the time, went through a, was viewed through the Christian lens of the West, we got the good karma and bad karma. If we do enough good deeds, we will be reborn and ultimately reach enlightenment, oneness with God, whatever you want to call it. Most of the people who are talking about karma don't really think a whole lot about that. They just pride themselves on collecting good karma points and avoiding bad karma points. What it comes down to is justification by law or justification by works, and Christianity has universally held that we cannot be justified by the law and we cannot be justified before God by our good deeds. If we can't do that in one lifetime, what makes you think we'd be any better able to do it with a thousand or ten thousand lifetimes? I would also note that in the Eastern religions where you see the idea of karma, Buddhism and the Hindu traditions, you also find a highly developed moral and ethical code. You find strong, clear standards. There are lots of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. There are lots of taboos which you are expected to weigh and measure your life and your conduct against where the postmodern Western version of karma, typically good karma means things that make me feel good or things that make me feel warm and fuzzy and pleasant and virtuous on the inside, and bad karma means things I don't like. You invest your good karma points in your next life savings account, and you put your bad karma points on your next life credit card in hopes that you'll be able to put off paying the debt until your next incarnation. And given the trouble Americans have gotten themselves into with credit cards and loans and debt slavery, I'm really not sure that's a workable spiritual investment plan. The idea of reincarnation adds another complication to an already complicated structure. We know we're born. We know that we live. We Presumably, if you're listening to this, you're living. We also know that at some point we will die. We do not know that we had other lives before this. Some of us may have past life memories, or so we call them. I've seen very few past life memories which could be verified to a, certainly not to a scientific level, and really not even to an especially convincing anecdotal level. We have no guarantee of m multiple future lives. You know, to be honest, we don't even have a guarantee of one afterlife. It could well be, you know, and certainly many 
perhaps most Americans at this point might tell you that no, this life is the one you get and after it ends, that's it and it's all over. But Occam's razor would say that the idea of one life after death would be easier to swallow than hundreds and thousands of lives after death. I think it's telling that serious Buddhists and serious Hindus spend a great deal of time preparing themselves for a better afterlife and engage in many of the same practices which Christians do toward that end. So whether we got one afterlife or a thousand afterlifes, if we've got an afterlife, the overwhelming consensus appears to be we need to work very hard in this life to ensure our place in the next. I think it's also telling that those Eastern religions see their ultimate goal. You know, they don't call it heaven. They may call it nibbana or nirvana, and there are serious theological differences between their vision and our vision. But the really important point is that they believe that their end and the highest goal is to be in the presence of God, where Christianity holds that those who follow Christ will enjoy the eternal presence of God, while those who do not will suffer the most horrible of all fates, which is eternal separation from God. And I know all this talk about eternal punishments and being held accountable for your actions in the next life is terrifying. It's a hard topic. But you can't avoid topics simply because they're hard. The purpose of a religion... The purpose of any life philosophy is to answer hard questions, or at least to deal with hard questions and offer some illumination on them. And there are few questions more important than, what is my soul and what happens to it after I die? 21st century America has a real problem with the whole idea of death. For most of our history, death was pretty present all around. You could see executed criminals. People typically died at home. So you could see the bodies. You had seen death up close and personal, and you knew it was a real thing. Today, death is mostly confined to hospitals. We handle it in funeral homes. We sanitize it. We whitewash it. And it becomes the big scary elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about. But it's an inevitable part of the human experience. Religion used to be the guide that we turned to for dealing with death, for dealing with sickness, for dealing with all of the problems that faced us in life. It, religion was supposed to be there to deal with the hard times and the hard questions. And today, for most people, religion has become a matter of choose the religion that's most comfortable for you, the one that you feel you're attuned with, the one that vibrates with you, however you want to put it. The emphasis has become finding a religion that's comfortable for you, Nobody wants to talk about finding a true religion. You know, if the word comes up at all, well, all religions are true. There's some truth in all religions, and you can find the truth in any religion you like. The religious organizations that have taken that approach are largely hemorrhaging members now because it, you know, for all the talk about find the religion that resonates with you, these religions resonate with nobody. A true religion asks hard questions, it offers hard answers, and it makes hard demands because we live in a hard world. Hell is a terrifying possibility. But what if hell is real? What if that is a real possibility? How do we govern our lives accordingly? There's a few ways we could do it. The Christian way would be to acknowledge the danger that we're in, to take the steps necessary to alleviate that danger, to trust in Christ, become part of the body of Christ in the church of Christ. Part of our responsibility as members of that church would be to try saving as many people as possible from the fate of eternal damnation. And that means 
calling them out on things that they're doing which may endanger their immortal soul. And that's definitely an uncomfortable responsibility. We are much happier with live and let live. What you do is none of my business so long as nobody else gets hurt. But if I know that a bridge is washed out and I see a car coming up the path and I know that they may drive off that bridge and be injured or killed, I have a responsibility to warn that person to try to stop them from going over that bridge. I can't guarantee you that they'll listen to me. They might beep at me and like shoot me the finger as they drive past on the road, but I have a responsibility to try to save that person from a danger that they don't recognize. And if I have a responsibility to save these people from a potential car accident, how much of a responsibility do I have to save them from eternal damnation? I could, of course, declare the whole question silly. Obviously, there's no souls. There's no life after death. We live in a mechanistic universe created by blind mechanical forces. There's no God. There's none of that stuff. There's no reason to waste your time on silly stuff like that. Religion is just the opiate of the masses. We're too evolved for that. But if you take that approach, you have to examine the full ramifications of your belief. And if you listen to my piece on H.P. Lovecraft, who I've referred to as one of the few honest atheists, probably the only atheist mystic who comes to mind immediately, you'll see that... The ramifications of that are pretty frightening. If we live in a mechanistic universe ruled entirely by blind cosmic forces, we live in a world that's every bit as terrifying as the Christian hell. We could also recoil from the Christian position in absolute horror. Certainly only a sadistic god would have eternal torment for people. That, I don't want anything to do with that God. I want to go find a religion which better fits my needs, which better suits my prejudices, a religion which promises eternal happiness, forgiveness, love, and tolerance, none of this difficult stuff about hellfire and being damned for your sins, and a lot of people make that choice. But I would caution you that if you look at that Christian message, if you look at the idea of sin and salvation and hellfire and damnation, and you decide this is just too hard, this is just too scary, I don't want to learn any more about this, I want to find a religion which better suits me, if I want to look for the comfortable religion rather than the true religion, well then I am obligated to inform you that what you have done there constitutes a willful turning away from God and his message and would qualify you under Catholic and Christian standards for eternal damnation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This has been Kenaz Filan's Notes from the End of Time, Episode 12, Kenaz Filan Goes to Hell. Thank you very much for putting up with me for an hour. May God bless us, each and every one.